Welcome to the MatCast. This is where creative believers are encouraged to be great artists. My name is Matt Anderson. I want to thank you for joining us for this episode. If you haven't done so, please subscribe and then give us a five-star review on your platform. It's a great help to me and I greatly appreciate it. Some people only require one name. Some artists with that one name can become synonymous with genius. Both are true of Rembrandt. He is considered one of, if not the greatest, Western painter. But it wasn't only his great paintings but he was considered a master in drawing and etching as well. His style embraced a panorama of expression, historical paintings, portraits, landscapes, and of course, many biblical subjects. As with many of the greats, his life could be overly complicated. And some of it, if not most of it, was of his own doing. However, few artists would encounter as much tragic loss as he. Rembrandt van Rijn was born in Holland in the city of Leiden on July 15, 1606. His father was a successful miller, a tradesman. His mother was literate and deeply religious. It is believed that any religious connection in Rembrandt's life would most likely come from her. And though his connections to church would be tenuous at best, he was officially baptized in the Dutch Reformed Church. Beyond childhood, however, we see little to no identification with it. It was his mother who would regale him with biblical stories, from both the Old and New Testaments, showing that the Bible was a grand narrative that showed man's need of redemption and how it could only be found in the life and sacrifice of Jesus. In spite of his roots, his parents wanted a better life for their own son than the one his father was able to provide. They invested heavily in his education At the age of seven, he was sent to Latin school and then at 14 was enrolled at the University of Leiden. But rather than connecting with a highly professional occupation, it became clear early that art was his passion. In 
thankfully his parents did not stand in his way. Rembrandt removed himself from university and apprenticed himself to a local master, then to Amsterdam, where he was taught by Peter Lastman, who was known for his historical paintings. Once Rembrandt learned all he needed to know from him, he returned to his hometown, opened up his own studio, and began taking on students, which, at the age of 21, was virtually unheard of. Something tells me that if Rembrandt were alive today, he would have loved social media. He would have fit in snugly with the millennial generation, no doubt taking endless selfies to populate his account. And by that standard, he may be our most vulnerable, or some would say vain, painter. In addition, Rembrandt from his earliest days would often insert himself into historical or even biblical paintings as if he was part of the narrative. Uh, More on that later. According to the National Gallery of Art, there are 80 self-portraits in various genres that have survived to this day, spanning his entire adult life. His first was at the age of 22, as his professional life was beginning. It would be his most cheerful pose, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, ready to make a name for himself and conquer the art world, almost laughing at the simplicity of what life had in store for him. At the end of 1631, Rembrandt moved back to Amsterdam, which was quickly emerging as the commercial powerhouse of the Netherlands. There he would produce portraits for patrons. While trying to get off the ground, he stayed with art dealer Hendrik von Uhlenberg. And while there, he would develop deep romantic feelings for Uhlenberg's cousin, Saskia. Saskia came from a well-to-do family. Her father was a lawyer, and also served as a mayor. But her parents would die when she was a young lady. Falling in love with Rembrandt, they would marry secretly without the presence of relatives. Saskia would prove to be the great love of his life. Rembrandt's career was also beginning to take off. He had become a burgess of the city of Amsterdam, and a member of the local guild of painters. He was acquiring more students and receiving more commissions, including from the court of The Hague. He was undergoing a meteoric rise, and this is reflected in many of his self-portraits of the time. His pride and arrogance seem to be on full display with each self-depiction. It is clear he is hungry for applause and adulation, often wearing extravagant costumes, foregoing the usual starched collar of the day, and instead choosing gold chains, berets plumed with ostrich feathers, helmets, and even turbans. His self-confidence is on full display. This culminates at the age of 30, when he paints himself at a brothel. Oddly enough, he paints his wife 
as the uh, woman of ill repute in the painting. Looking at Rembrandt's face in it, he seems full of glee, turning his face toward the viewer, holding up a half-filled glass in his right hand and his left hand around the waist of his companion. He seems to look arrogantly through the canvas at you as if to say, I'm having the time of my life. And though Rembrandt would never be mistaken as a member of the clergy, the post-Reformation world of Holland would not have tolerated him being depicted with a woman who wasn't his wife. It was hard enough for the religious community to endure his youthful artistic choices as they were. Having said that, we have no knowledge of Rembrandt's fidelity while he was married. However, let's just say that one wouldn't be surprised to hear of extramarital exploits. However, any trysts along the way, if they happened, would pale in comparison to his overt love for Saskia. Nevertheless, at this stage of his life, he's often described as convinced of his own genius. He was doing so well that he decided it was time to put down fanciful roots. In 1639, they moved into a fashionable home in Amsterdam, in what was becoming the Jewish Quarter. However, the mortgage needed to finance such a home was substantial, and it left the artist and his wife under a mountain of debt. In today's U.S. dollars, his purchase would be just under 800000 it was here that Rembrandt would often enlist the help of the local Jewish community to pose for him as he drew and painted especially Old Testament stories and subjects. And although he had become wealthy through his art, he and Saskia would experience an incredible number of tragedies and setbacks. In 1635, their first son, Rumbartus, died two months after his birth. In 1638, their daughter Cornelia died at three weeks. Two years later, they would have another daughter they named Cornelia, who died only a month into her life. Only their fourth child, Titus, would survive into adulthood. And soon after Titus was born, his wife Saskia is believed to have contracted tuberculosis and died in 1642 at the age of 30. Well, as one might imagine, facing almost a decade of unbelievable losses, Rembrandt was devastated. Financially, he had enormous obligations to meet, most notably his beautiful home, but also due to his own lavish spending. He was painting now more out of obligation to patrons and clients instead of his own artistic vision. This would include his self-portraits, by the way. At the time, buying self-portraits of artists was quite marketable, and Rembrandt, good or bad, was willing to oblige. Romantically, his life became increasingly complicated. For reasons we do not know, Saskia, a few weeks before her death, 
had drawn up a new will, and in it she left her share of hers and Rembrandt's combined estate, not to Rembrandt, but to their baby son Titus, which would be given to him when he came of age. However, Saskia's will also stated that any interest accrued from her part of their joint estate could be used by Rembrandt as he was the father and guardian of their son. As strange as the terms of the will seem, it was legally binding. Now, whether this was in response to Rembrandt's spending or something else, we just don't know. Perhaps even more surprising about the will was a codicil included, which stated if Rembrandt should marry again, all of Saskia's money would be returned to her birth family, the Eulenbergs. Financially, Rembrandt could not even think of remarrying. Which brings us to Goethe Dirks. Now, when Saskia died, it is believed that Goethe was already living in the home and acting as a nursemaid for little Titus. What is not known is whether Rembrandt and Goethe were intimate. What seems to be clear is that Goethe, after a few years, seemed to believe she was as much a part of the family as anyone. A few years into her employment, in 1647, Rembrandt hired a housekeeper named Hendrika Stoffels. Now, she was 16 years younger than Goethe and 20 years younger than Rembrandt. And the two women did not get along. Goethe believed that Hendrika was moving in on her territory, and this seemed to form eventually into very hardcore jealousy as the now six-year-old Titus seemed to bond more with the newer arrival, Hendrika, than his own nursemaid. Well, Rembrandt and Hendrika also bonded emotionally, and Goethe was the odd one out, and she became incensed. Her increasing anger made her unemployable, so Rembrandt fired her. But Goethe was not remotely finished with Rembrandt. She would sue him. On what charge? That he refused to honor an unwritten agreement that the two would marry. Now, we already know Saskia's will made that quite impossible, but we also know what... Well, men can say in moments of passion. We don't know what happened behind closed doors. But we do know how the marital court of Amsterdam ruled in this case. They would award Goethe an annual payment of 200 guilders as alimony, which Rembrandt would pay for six years. But in an odd twist, what also emerged in the proceedings was that Goethe had actually stolen some of Saskia's jewelry from the home, perhaps as what she figured was just payment for services rendered? Who knows? She was found guilty of the theft and sentenced to what some believe was a workhouse and others believe a mental institution for a period of five years. Well, with Goethe out of the way, Rembrandt, now fully and romantically invested 
in Hendrika. Now, religiously, Hendrika was much more tied to the church than Rembrandt was, so when the Reformed Church Council got wind of their relationship, that they were essentially acting as husband and wife without being married, they called Hendrika to face spiritual charges of whoredom and living with a man unwed. Since Rembrandt was not a churchgoer, they really had no authority over him. And normally, a woman in her situation, like Hendrika, would do all she could to refute the charges to the church council. Uh, Unfortunately, she was also six months pregnant at the time. So there was no use denying it. Well, the church council actually banished her from attending all special church occasions. In 1654, Hendrika would give birth to a girl that once again was named Cornelia. Now, the scandal of the extramarital pregnancy would cause many potential patrons and benefactors to look elsewhere for artistry. And the results would be devastating financially. And although experts point to many of his paintings in this time as some of his best work, the money was not coming in and the financial obligations were immense. And eventually they became too much. Rembrandt was declared insolvent and asked for the right to sign over his property and effects for the benefit of his creditors in order to avoid bankruptcy. All of his possessions, his own creations, other painters' works he had collected, his large collection of artifacts, his home in Amsterdam, his furniture, all sold in auctions in 1657 and 1658. Rembrandt was humiliated. What might be surprising is that these incidents did not seem to turn the Dutch master into a bitter man. His his work at this time shows increasing warmth and even whimsy, most likely the reflections of a man who has been seasoned by life and anxious to show what he has learned to his audience. Author Jacob Rosenberg writes, he began to regard man and nature with an even more penetrating eye, no longer distracted by outward splendor or theatrical display. Throughout his artistic life, Rembrandt was fascinated with older people as his subjects, and his increasing age only seemed to buttress that fascination. And as Rembrandt continued to look at himself in the mirror and paint self-portraits, he holds nothing back in displaying his aging skin and increasing dark circles around his eyes and wrinkles. In fact, he almost seems to wear them as a badge of honor. Unfortunately, tragedy would continue to visit him. In 1663, 
Hendrika would die at the age of 37. Some speculate that she passed from the bubonic plague that had circulated throughout the city. The same plague would kill 10% of Amsterdam's population. Five years later, his son Titus would be married, but unfortunately die a few months after. A year later, Rembrandt would himself die, having left few survivors and few resources, but a rich legacy of over 600 paintings, 300 etchings, and many drawings and sketches. His artistic influence is undeniable, and he is still considered by the West as one of the greatest of all time. But what about the soul of Rembrandt? Now we know he did not involve himself in church life or attendance. But can we conclude there was a deep belief in Christ? Well, on that note, I'm, I'm going to try to be very careful. I'm not going to try to proclaim his eternal destiny here, because frankly, we don't know. Like many artists throughout time, Rembrandt liked to explore biblical stories and topics in his paintings. In fact, some have credited one-third of his works to biblical subjects. Those paintings cover the vast array of the Bible. Examples include David presenting the head of Goliath to Saul, the feast of Belshazzar, the angel stopping Abraham from sacrificing Isaac to God, and the binding of Samson. The New Testament would also attract his attention. Christ driving the money changers from the temple, Christ at Emmaus, the raising of Lazarus, and the Good Samaritan. But then there are biblical subjects of even a separate class. As I mentioned before, sometimes Rembrandt could not help putting himself in the midst of these creations. They serve much like his self-portraits as a roadmap of his own belief system. Early in his career, he painted the storm on the Sea of Galilee, in which Jesus calms a storm that threatens to kill him and the disciples. It is Rembrandt's only seascape. Well, in it, he portrays himself as one of the panicked disciples hanging for dear life on the rigging of the boat. He would also include himself in the raising of the cross as the man at the base of the cross as it is being elevated with the attached Jesus upon it. He seems to be a man uniquely in touch with his own frailty, his own spiritual weaknesses, that he is a man given to fear and possibly even responsible for the death of Christ because of his sin. It is quite a statement, especially in light of his behavior at the time. However, it didn't seem to affect his behavior very much. Still, it is quite powerful. Nearer to the end of his life, 
he paints himself literally as the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul would be a subject of fascination for Rembrandt throughout his life. Uh, Paul was a large source of Reformation theology, which dominated Holland at the time, so it was something that Rembrandt regularly wrestled with. Now in his 50s, he would paint himself as the Apostle Paul. Now on the surface, this seems like a move of arrogance on his part, but Rembrandt is really not trying to compare himself to the great apostle. More, he is humanizing Paul and applauding his ability to encourage saints in the midst of his own suffering. He wants the viewer to identify with Paul, to see him as just like them, probably apparently as Rembrandt did. And then almost at the end of his life, Rembrandt paints a full-size work called The Return of the Prodigal Son. In it, Rembrandt does not include his face on the canvas so much as showing full understanding of the characters involved. In fact, author Henry Nouwen would devote an entire book to his fascination with the painting and the spiritual principles learned from it. His contention is that Rembrandt's life circulated among the three characters. When he was young, he identified with the prodigal himself, the young man who wasted so much in an effort to attain artificial happiness, only to leave him destitute. As Rembrandt matured and perfected his craft and probably became more steeped in pride and arrogance, he more becomes the older brother, the one who sits in judgment of people and their imperfections while ignoring his own. But it is in his portrayal of the Father that he shows full understanding of grace and hopefully in his own life. He indeed had come full circle. One of the scariest things, I think, for every artist is making the decision to, in one way or another, incorporate ourselves physically, spiritually, emotionally, putting ourselves into our work. Yes, it can quickly become narcissistic and self-aggrandizing if our motives are impure. But we can also so fully protect ourselves and avoid any personal reference in our art, but it will be hollow and fall way short. We must find a way as artists who walk with Jesus to place ourselves in what we create, one way or another, terribly visible or barely visible, for that will generate, I think, the greatest passion possible. There needs to be just a little bit of selfie in what we create. I think Rembrandt teaches us that we should worry little about the amateur Freuds and therapists along the way who will try to analyze us through our art. For as long as Christ is at the helm of what we make, let the chips fall and realize others will be eternally impacted.
appreciate you being a part of the MatCast. Please share this with a friend. We'd love to expand our MatCast family. For questions or comments, you can email me at mattcastworld at gmail.com. mattcastworld at gmail.com. Our theme music is by Sound of Fusion. This has been a production of Monumental Ministries. If you'd like more information or to hear our archives, go to mattministry.com. Hey, thanks for having me over. I had a wonderful time.